This is Come Follow Me with David Ridges for the week of October 26th through November 1st, covering Mormon chapters 1 through 6. My name is Kevin Tolley, and I will be your guest teacher today. I am an institute director at the California Riverside Institutes of Religion and am a co-author, along with my good friend Patrick Bishop, of a book entitled Apostolic Succession in the Restoration. As we begin our study of Mormon chapters 1 through 6, let's pause right at the very beginning to talk about the name Mormon. Gordon B. Hinckley related the following experience as he served as first counselor in the first presidency. He says, I suppose that regardless of our efforts, we may never convert the world to the general use of the full and correct name of the church. Because of the shortness of the word Mormon and the ease in which it is spoken and written, they will continue to call us Mormons, the Mormon church, and so forth. So they could do worse. More than 50 years ago, when I was a missionary in England, I said to one of my associates, how can we get people, including our own members, to speak of the church by its proper name? He replied, you can't. The word Mormon is too deeply ingrained and too easy to say. He went on, I've quit trying. While I am thankful for the privilege of being a follower of Jesus Christ and a member of of the church, which bears his name, I am not ashamed of the nickname Mormon. Look, he went on to say, if there is any name which is totally honorable in its derivation, it is the name Mormon. And so, when someone asks me about it and what it means, I quietly say, Mormon means more good. In fact, back in the Times and Seasons periodical, back in Nauvoo, on the 15th of May, 1843, an article was published which gives the meaning of the name Mormon. It says, Mormon, which literally means, quote, more good. The article was signed, Joseph Smith. Other scholars have tackled the name Mormon to try to figure out where the name came from and what it means. Some have suggested that it, came, that it comes from the Egyptian. Two Egyptian words, one, mari, which means beloved, and the other, men, meaning enduring, steadfast, or to remain. In other words, if the word Mormon comes from Egyptian, it might mean love established forever. Whether you take the name meaning more good or love established forever, it seems as though the name Mormon has meaning. It's interesting that the man Mormon, this great prophet who compiles much of the Book of Mormon, um, shows his humility by how often he uses his own name. He compiles the book, the books of Mosiah all the way through 4th Nephi, but it isn't until 270 pages through his own editing that he decides to introduce himself. In 3rd Nephi chapter 5, he says, Behold, I am called Mormon. I always imagined it's Mormon stepping behind, out from behind the curtain for a minute, taking a pause during an intermission to introduce himself some 270 pages into his own record. He introduces himself with a number of uh, qualifiers. He says, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he points out his own lineage. He says, I am Mormon, a pure descendant of Lehi, suggesting that maybe among the Nephites, other cultures, other races mixed in. But his genealogy, he could trace it clear back to Lehi. In the Book of Mormon, he begins his record 
with a bit of a colophon, an introduction to his record that parallels what we see in 1 Nephi chapter 1, greatly influenced by these small plates. He begins just like Nephi does. As Nephi begins his record, I, Nephi, he says, and now I, Mormon, make a record of these things, uh, which I have both seen and heard and call it the Book of Mormon. This phrase, seen and heard, is sprinkled throughout the Book of Mormon, but it's quite often associated with seeing and hearing spiritual things. In fact, Nephi frames the call of his his father as a prophet, Lehi, with this phrase, the things which he had seen and heard. And then he begins with a vision of heavenly things. Take a look throughout the Book of Mormon. The phrase seen and heard is often associated with witnessing, but it's witnessing heavenly things. And so he begins his record of his witness of heaven's hand throughout the history of his people. Not only the history of his people, but the history of his own life. He begins his record with kind of a biographical sketch of himself. In fact, his record is so clearly associated with times, dates, and events. It's a wonderful record to begin to outline his life. In Mormon chapter 1, verse 2, he continues. He says, And about the time that Amron hid up the record unto the Lord, he came unto me, I being about ten years of age, and I being began to be learned, somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people. It's interesting that Mormon begins his record just like Nephi does, introducing himself and talking about his personal education. In the biblical record, in the narrative of the Old Testament, scholars suggest that somewhere between 2 and 10% of the populace was educated, was literate. It's interesting that Nephi begins his record beginning with his the fact that he is literate. I don't know what the literacy rates were among uh, the Nephite nation and among the peoples of the Americas, but Nephi, or excuse me, Mormon begins his record with a similar thing. He says, I am learned. Here is a man that will be skilled in philosophy and history and theology. And he introduces himself as being literate. I am, uh, I am learned somewhat in the manner of the learning of my people. The record continues. He says, Amrod said unto me, I perceive that thou art a sober child and are quick to observe. There is, uh, there's no evidence of kinship between Mormon and Amron, but Amron notice something about Mormon. They appear to be closely associated and describes Mormon as being quick to observe. Elder David A. Bednar, in an Ensign talk from December of 2006, made this comment. He says, being quick to observe is a prerequisite to and a preparation for the gift of discernment. Being quick to observe is an interesting thing. I love this idea that Elder Bednar associates spiritual gifts with prerequisites. Now, as we remember from his most recent talk, Elder Bednar's background is in education. And I think he's all about prerequisites. But I love how he, he associates spiritual gifts with prerequisites. If being quick to observe is a prerequisite and a preparation for the gift of discernment, I wonder what other gifts have prerequisites. Maybe pre-gifts that we can use to expand, to unlock, and unpackage 
further and more expansive gifts. Elder Stephen L. Richard, some 70 years ago, talked about this gift of discernment. He says the gift of discernment arises largely out of an acute sensitivity to impressions, spiritual impressions, if you will, to read under the surface, as it were, to detect hidden evil, and more importantly, to find good that may be concealed. The highest type of discernment is that which perceives in others and uncovers for them their better natures, the uh, good inherent within them. It's interesting that Mormon had this gift of, uh, or excuse me, was quick to observe, but clearly Amron had this gift of discernment, could see something within this young, sober child. It's interesting that uh, in a similar way to Amron, President Nelson sees a similar potential, similar good in our youth today. In uh, June of 2018, President Nelson made this comment. He says, quote, My beloved younger brothers and sisters, you are among the best the Lord has ever sent to this world. You have the capacity to be smarter and wiser and have more impact on the world than any previous generation. Just like Amron, President Nelson sees many of our youth today um, as, as having a great impact up, upon the world. This comes from a talk entitled, You Are the Hope of Israel. And I can imagine Amron looking at this young Mormon, seeing his potential and seeing what he could become and helping him become who he needs to be. The record continues. In Mormon chapters 1, verse 3, he says, Therefore, when ye are about 24 years old, I would that ye should remember the things which ye have observed concerning this people. And when ye are of that age, go to the land of Antum, unto a hill which is called Shem. And there I have deposited unto the Lord all the sacred engravings concerning this people. It's interesting that at age 10, this young uh, young man, who will later become a mighty prophet, is given a almost like a patriarchal blessing. I sat, I sat in a state conference one time. One of the speakers, a visiting authority, talked about how we don't... Uh, our, our young people aren't receiving their patriarchal blessings. Some wait till they're 18, 19, and preparing to serve a mission before they get their patriarchal blessing. He lamented a little bit that our youth could have them as young as 12 years old as they come into this, this turbulent time in their life, and how a patriarchal blessing can help them navigate through these difficult times, what better time to receive a patriarchal blessing? And here is Mormon at age 10 and the prophet giving him specific assignments, a goal that he needs to work for. At age 24, he is to find the record and he is along the way supposed to pay close attention to spiritual things. What would this do to a young man to know that he had an assignment from the Lord, that he had an, a, a job to fulfill, uh, an assignment that he needed to, to fulfill. And I just wonder how, uh, what this does to individuals if they know they have an assignment from the Lord. When was the last time you read your patriarchal blessing? What promises, blessings are there in that blessing that are yet to be fulfilled? And what can you do today to fulfill those blessings? 
Here is Mormon, age 10 years old, a lifetime away at age 24, he would go to the hill and write down everything that he is he has learned. I wonder how often he sat down and rehearsed the things which he had seen and heard throughout his life. Verse 4 continues, And behold, ye will take the plates of Nephi unto yourself, and the remainder ye shall leave in the place where they are. And ye shall engrave on the plates of Nephi all the things which ye have observed concerning this people. This is not a charge to create the Book of Mormon yet, but to continue the chronicle. He's not supposed to compile anything, but simply record what he has seen throughout his lifetime over those 14 years. Again, he points out in verse 5, And I, Mormon, being a descendant of Nephi. Do you remember his introduction back in 3 Nephi chapter 5? He says, I am a descendant of Lehi. His genealogy means something to him. And this might have an impact later in his life. He continues on. At age 11, he uh, travels to the land of Zarahemla, carried by my father into the land. This is uh, one of the few instances we find out a little bit about his family. That he is carried by his father into the land of Zarahemla. Um, at age 11, wars begin. In verse number 8, Mormon 1.8, we outline all the seven tribes that seems to be that, uh, that are outlined throughout the Book of Mormon. The tribes of Nephites and Jacobites and Josephites, Zoramites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites. That these tribes continue throughout the thousand-year history of the Book of Mormon. Skipping down to verse 11, it says, And it came to pass the Nephites had gathered together a great number of men, even to exceed the number of 30,000. The wars begin, and they're starting to marshal the ranks. Mormon's father might have been killed in one of these initial battles, because his father isn't mentioned again. And at a very young age, Mormon is placed into leadership. This might be, because, might be because his father held a similar position. We don't know if this position as a leader of the, of the Nephite military for, forces was associated with lineage. Uh, maybe his father was a military leader or the fact that he was a direct descendant of Nephi and Lehi. But at a very young age, he will uh, gain the helm of... Uh, of uh, of the Nephite armies. In verse number 13, it says, but wickedness did prevail upon the face of the whole land. If I could pause here just for a minute, I want to show a parallel between Mormon chapter 1 and what is written in the book of Isaiah. The book of Mormon is deeply uh, influenced by the book of Mormon. Isaiah chapter 5 is a parable, a parable about a vineyard. In fact, uh, Jehovah is compared to the master of the vineyard who continually sings to his vineyard. He sings a song in hopes that it will grow. <laughs> the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 is the nation of Israel, um, the people of Judah and Jerusalem. It's interesting that this uh, the farmer in the parable does everything he can to help this vine grow. Isaiah chapter 5, this parable is very short, but he outlines what he does. He begins to sing this parable. It says, The farmer began to fence, fence the field, gathered out the stones, 
planted the choicest vine, built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, but unfortunately it brought forth wild grapes. He continues to, to outline what he's going to do with this vineyard who produced wild grapes. It's interesting what the word that is behind the English wild grapes. It comes from a Hebrew word that is in another place uh, used to describe the scent of rotting fish. This isn't just grapes that are just a little bit sour. They are putrid grapes. The nation of... Uh, of Judah has per- produced um, foul-smelling grapes. The master of the vineyard outlines what he's going to do. He laments, what could I have done more for my vineyard? In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4, he says that I have not done. He says, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge the protection of the vineyard. And it shall be eaten up and break down and the wall thereof shall be trodden down and I will lay it waste. He removes the tower and the wine press. The tower represents prophets. God never punishes the vine. He just removes protection. It's interesting that a similar thing happens in Mormon chapter one and two and so forth that God doesn't necessarily punish the Nephites. He just removes all protection. The blessings that they could have had, he removes the prophets. He removes the walls. He removes any type of protection and allows the enemy come in and to trod down the vineyard. Notice this, that uh, during this time, In Mormon chapter 1, verse 13, wickedness prevailed upon the face of the earth, and you can see the master of the vineyard remove items away. He says, insomuch that the Lord did take away his beloved disciples. The works of miracles and of healings did cease because of the iniquity of the people. These three Nephites, we learn about them in 3 Nephi chapter 28 and how they endured so much wickedness that they were cast into pits and to furnaces, but they remained. But it was during this time that the three Nephites and the miracles, the healings, all went away. That God is beginning to withdraw the blessings that they could have had. Mormon chapter 1 verse 14, And there was no gifts from the Lord. I have noticed in my life that it sometimes is hard to recognize when I feel the Holy Ghost, but I can clearly recognize in my own life when I don't feel the Holy Ghost. When I've made mistakes in my life and I can feel the Holy Ghost withdraw. Have you had this experience where you've said something that you shouldn't have said and as soon as it leaves your mouth, you can feel the Holy Ghost step back? Or maybe it's us that step back from God. But sometimes it's more easily recognizable, our leaving God, than um, even when God is speaking to us. Sometimes some of us have been members of the church for a very long time and have had that constant companionship. It's almost like a fish doesn't realize that he's wet until you pull him out of the water. And we can see here that... uh, (laughs) 
that the Nephites are being pulled out of this comfort of their association with, with God, with heaven. Mormon chapter 1, verse 15, he says, And I, being 15 years of age, and being somewhat sober of mind, so humbly he writes, he says, Therefore I was visited of the Lord, and tasted and knew the goodness of God. Can you see the juxtaposition between these two verses? Verse 14, there's no gifts among the people, because of the wickedness, in verse number 13, did prevail. But during this time, when God, when the people are drawing back from God, Mormon himself, as a young man, is drawing towards God. During a time when it seems as though the world is in chaos, God is still active among those who earnestly seek him. I love this quote. I stumbled across this quote by Stephen Harper, a BYU professor of church history. As he describes the first vision, he makes this comment, quote, The God that reveals himself to Joseph Smith in the sacred grove is a God who answers teenagers in, the time, in times of trouble. I love this idea, that God answers individuals, even teenage farm boys, even a young man by the name of Mormon. It's interesting that during this first vision, the one thing that really consumed Joseph Smith's uh, mind was him wanting forgiveness, wanting to repent of his sins. Yes, he wanted to know which church to join, but the root of it all was he needed to feel that God was there for him, that he could repent, that he could return to God. Let's go back to Mormon chapter 1, verse 15. He says, Therefore I was visited of the Lord, and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. What greater goodness is there than forgiveness? That the Savior was aware of him. A boy, a young man, and I think every young teenager, and I think every one of us struggles with the idea of feeling alone. And I'm sure the more he drew closer to God, and the more his friends and maybe relatives uh, walked away from God, he felt more isolated. What greater goodness is there than knowing that God was there for him, that there was forgiveness? When the world is in a spiral downward, Mormon stayed true, and heaven was aware of his righteous desires. The story continues, despite his close relationship with the Savior. In verse 16, he says, I did endeavor to preach unto this people, but my mouth was shut. Regardless of this, in verse 17, he did remain among them. But he could see clearly, even though the people might not have noticed this, that they were living through prophecy. In verse, in verse, uh, or excuse me, chapter one, verse eighteen and nineteen, we see the fulfillment of prof- prophecy. Sam the Lamanite prophesied that this day would come when Gadion robbers would infest the land and their property would become slippery. Samuel Lamanite outlines this in Helaman chapter thirteen, verses eighteen through twenty-three, and verses thirty through thirty-seven. What Mormon could see clearly the Nephites were blind to. Mormon chapter 2 describes Mormon's military leadership from about age 
15 all the way to age 39. The first verse reads, And it came to pass that the same year there began to be war again between the Nephites and Lamanites, and notwithstanding I being young, was large in stature. Therefore the people of Nephi appointed me that I should be their leader. The next verse describes Mormon taking the post at age 16. For the rest of the chapter, Mormon describes his preparation for war. Preparation was twofold. Not only did he want to prepare them physically, but he wanted to make sure that they prepared spiritually. Take a look at this. In verse number 8, it reads, But behold, the land was filled with robbers and with Lamanites, and notwithstanding the great destruction which hung over my people, they did not repent of their evil doings. Verse number 9 describes the first military victory among the Nephites. In a battle against the king of the Lamanites, who is named Aaron, Mormon writes, And it came to pass, I beat him with my armies. This is the first recorded Nephite military victory. Keep this in mind that Mormon began to lead the Nephite armies at age 16, a few verses beforehand. He is now 20. There's been four years, and this is the first recorded victory. We might learn a little bit about uh, Mormon's nature, that he's not going to give up. He might have had a number of failures before his first military victory. Recorded here, there's been a four-year gap. Following this, uh, the Nephites began to repent in verse number 10, but the repentance wasn't lasting. Mormon explains in verse number 13 that their sorrowing was not unrepentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. It seems at this point that Mormon takes some time to take happiness in sin. The Nephite armies begin to take a drastic decline. In verse number 20, it says they were hunted and driven. They were pushed back and back. And then verse 23, Mormon does his best to encourage the Nephites to try to turn the tide of wickedness. He takes a page out of his hero, Captain Moroni, and tries to encourage him with these words. In uh, verse 23 of Mormon chapter 2, it says, And it came to pass that I did speak unto my people, and I had urged them with great energy that they would stand boldly before the Lamanites and fight for their wives and their children and their houses and their homes. This points right back to Captain Moroni's speech with one major difference. He tries to encourage them by fighting for their homes and families, but he avoids uh, the mentioning of God religion, and faith, as Captain Moroni and others had done in the past, in the war chapters in Alma. Captain Moroni motivated the people with talk of not only wives, family, children, but also God and their religion. The idea of God and religion had no motivation for the Nephites of Mormon's day. Notice in verse number 24, And my words had roused them somewhat to vigor. Apparently, Mormon's pleading did not motivate them to make lasting changes in their life. Verse number 27, we get an insight into Mormon's feelings. He says, And my heart did sorrow because of the great calamity of my people. One poet wrote, An entire sea of water can't sink a ship unless it gets inside the ship. 
the negativity of the world can't put you down unless you allow it to get inside you. The Nephites struggled. Even though there was wickedness all around them, the wickedness had gotten inside the Nephites, and Mormon realized it. In verse 28, a treaty was signed that ensured peace for a time among the Nephites and the Lamanites. Chapter 3 uh, it says that this treaty lasted for quite some time. Chapter 3, verse number 1 says the Lamanites did not come to battle again until 10 years more. I think Mormon realized that uh, this treaty wouldn't last forever, but it gave him a reprieve from leading the Nephite armies. For the next 10 years, he could occupy his time with other things. I think in the back of his mind, he knew that the treaty wouldn't last um, from the age of about 39 to about 49 uh, was during this uh, the time of this treaty. In Mormon chapter 3, verse number 2, it says, And it came to pass, the Lord did say unto me, Cry unto this people, Repent ye, and come unto me. It's interesting that the invitation is still there. God is still reaching out to the people. Despite everything that they've done in the past, God is still reaching out to the people. He still sends Mormon to the people, to cry to them, to repent, to change. Verse 3 gives the results, And I did cry unto this people, but it was in vain. There's a realization there that real change isn't occurring. Verse number 5 says, And it came to pass, I did cause my people, they should gather themselves together at the land of desolation, to a city which was in the borders by the narrow pass which led into the land southward. It's interesting that they're landing, they're they're gathering themselves at a place of desolation. That there might be something symbolic about the city name at this point. That uh, they're on the verge of not only uh, a physical but a spiritual desolation if they don't repent. There's an interesting twist that occurs in verse number eight. The Nephites actually win. There's something that you wouldn't expect that people won't repent. They're gathering at a place called Desolation, and they win. And as soon as they win, something horrible happens. Verse number 9, And now because of this great thing which my people, the Nephites, had done, they began to boast in their own strength. And it doesn't stop there. It continues. And began to swear before the heavens. Now, this is something they were told, they're commanded specifically not to do back in 3 Nephi chapter 13. Verse number 10 continues. This is, And they did swear by heaven and also by the throne of God. And this is where Mormon draws the line. He asked them to repent. He encouraged them. He he does everything he can to help them repent. They refuse. They go into the land of desolation and surprisingly they win. But as soon as they began to swear by heaven and by the throne of God, in verse 11, it says, And it came to pass that I, Mormon, did utterly refuse from that time forth to be the commander. Now, it's interesting that Mormon, that's where he draws the line. As soon as they began to boast and to swear by the heavens and the throne of God, Mormon walks away. Despite the fact that they had just won the battle. Mormon could see the writing on the wall. This was not going to end well if with this type of attitude. Verse number uh, 16 continues. It says, And it came to pass that I did utterly refuse to go against mine enemies. And Mormon is completely frustrated with his people. So it's interesting. At the end of this chapter, he begins to turn his attention away from the people 
to a future audience. He turns to the, his attention to the modern reader. His hope lies in this future generation. In Mormon 3.21, it says, And also ye may believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He encourages his reader. In verse number 22, it says, And I would that ye should persuade all ye ends of the earth to repent and prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This reminds me in contrast to what Paul writes. In Ephesians chapter 6, notice this. Mormon says, prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Remember what Paul writes in Ephesians 6. Beginning in verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Wherefore, take upon you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Verse 14 continues, Stand therefore. Four times Paul says to stand up, encouraging his people to wear the armor of God. Knowing that everybody gets hit, but just like a football player who walks out on the field without his gear, if he gets hit, he doesn't get back up. To walk out on a battlefield without armor on can have deadly consequences. Paul is encouraging you to wear the armor of God so you can take the hits that will come. We all get hit in life. If we're wearing the armor of God, you have the ability to get back up. The armor protects Here's Mormon pleading with his people, prepare to stand. If we combine this with what Paul writes in Ephesians, wear the armor of God because hits will come. But if you're wearing the armor, you'll be able to get back up and be prepared to stand. In Mormon chapter 4, Mormon is in his early 50s. The chapter describes graphically the wickedness and awful things that are occurring to the Nephite people. By way of commentary, Mormon chapter 4, verse number 5, gives an interesting insight. He says, But behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked. And it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 5 about the vineyard? God never punishes the vine. Instead, the farmer just removes protection. I wonder if that's how God works. He doesn't uh, need to punish. He just removes the protection. And we are left to protect ourselves. Mormon's commentary is interesting. That by the wicked, the wicked are punished. The depravity continues. The death toll is mounting in verse number 9. Thousands are slain on both sides. Verse 11 is an interesting commentary um, given from a soldier who's now in his mid-50s who has seen war for about 40 years of his life. Verse 11 reads, It is impossible for the tongue to describe, for man to write, the perfect description of the horrible scene of the blood and carnage. Now, from from an author who has seen blood and carnage much of his life, he says in verse number 12, And there never has uh, never had been so great wickedness among all the children of Lehi. And here's a man who has compiled the Nephite history. Now, for the first time, we have this described in verse number 15. 
the fact that uh, we've had captives in the past, but now uh, women are and children are being captives, and it's not just that. Mormon mentions prisoners previously, but this is the first time that women and children are mentioned, and the first time human sacrifice is mentioned. Look in verse number 15. And it came to pass that 367 years, the Nephites being angry because the Lamanites had sacrificed their women and their children. Again, in verse number 21, and when they had come the second time, the Nephites were driven and slaughtered with an exceedingly great slaughter. Their women and their children were again sacrificed unto idols. Apparently, this is done in such a way that the Nephites were aware or were able to witness part of this. Chapter 5, the carnage continues. Verse number 5 of chapter 5, it says, Their towns and villages and cities were burned with fire. The Lamanites have become more aggressive. They're taking prisoners, killing them, and destroying any towns that they come across. This is giving more and more graphic as the chapters continue. And in verse number two, if I, if I backtrack a little bit, Mormon makes a comment says, but behold, I was without hope. Mormon continually connects the destruction that occurs to them physically with their spiritual state. And in verse number two, he makes the comment, I was without hope. Whenever it seems as though when Mormon gets this state of hopelessness, he always he always finds hope in future generations. Verse number ten, he says, "And now, uh, behold, this I speak unto their seed, and also to the Gentiles." He turns his attention to a future time, for a time when Israel will realize who they are and what their potential is. Verse number eleven says. For I know that such will sorrow uh, for the calamity of the house of Israel. Yea, they will sorrow for the destruction of this people. They will sorrow that this people had not repented, that they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus. This idea of Jesus surrounding you might have connotations to the idea of atonement. In Hebrew, the word atonement comes from the Hebrew kafar, which means to wrap. And so Mormon continually uses this imagery of Jesus wrapping himself around you, clasped in the arms of Jesus. As the Nephites draw closer to this final battle, Mormon is constantly looking towards the future. He realizes that the Nephite nation is drawing to a close. And so he finds hope, love, and support for future generations and encourages them to repent and to come unto God. In verse 24, it says, Repent ye and humble yourselves before him. It's this constant encouragement to the future to learn from the stakes of the past. In chapter 6, he begins to finish his record. Mormon is preparing his people for this last battle in this, in this final chapter. As he organizes people around a hill called Cumorah. In verse number six, he says that an awful fear of death fell among the people. It's interesting how fear is almost contagious. As this fear of death fell upon him, it reminds me of this, uh, of a, a message by Elder Russell M. Nelson from 2011, then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, a, a video message that was entitled, Men's Heart Shall Fail Them. He describes being in a, in a plane as an engine goes out. And the plane begins to plummet towards the earth. 
While passengers of the plane uh, were beginning to panic, he watched the reaction of a hysterical woman. He says, quote, But I was calm. I was totally calm. Even though I knew I was going down to my death, I was ready to meet my maker. With an eternal, and then he continues on, he says, with an eternal perspective that all will be well. Contrast this with the Nephites who walk into the battlefield with an awful fear of death. Here is Elder Russell M. Nelson staring death in the face and, and claiming, I was calm. I was totally calm. He was ready to meet his maker. In uh, Mormon chapter 6, verse 8, he says that every soul was filled with terror. Um, during this battle, Mormon walks onto this final battlefield described in Mormon chapter 6, possibly realizing that he might survive. There's no farewell address in the previous chapter. He simply begins to describe what the battlefield was like. Some 240,000 uh, Nephite soldiers are arrayed in this battle. Now, uh, at the end of the battle, some 24 Nephite soldiers walk off the battlefield. To put this in perspective, during World War I, some 4 million American servicemen fought in the war. Over 53,000 of those were killed. For a ratio of 1 out of 88 were killed. World War II, 16 million American servicemen fought in, the, in, in, in that war. And some 291,000 were killed. For a ratio of 1 out of every 55. The Korean War had a casualty of 1 out of every 170. Vietnam... One out of every 65 were killed. Among this Nephite, for all intents and purposes, just about every Nephite soldier was killed. Just a few Nephites survived, just a handful. And Mormon 6.10 says, uh, Mormon says that I fell wounded in the midst, and the enemy passed by me. In uh, verse 11 says, All my people, save it were 24 of us, uh, among whom was my son, survived, uh, uh, survived the battle. These are amazing odds. The Lamanites' intent was extermination. Mormon concludes this chapter with an interesting lament. In verse number uh, chapter six, verse number six, seventeen, he says, "O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord?" O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Again, he has this imagery of the Savior with open arms ready to wrap you up. But he repeats four times this idea of fair ones. Verse 17, he says it twice. In verse number 19, he says, O ye fair sons and daughters. Later, ye fair ones, how is it that ye have fallen? Uh, Matthew Bowen has done some research on this idea of the name Nephites, uh, building on the research of John Gee, who says that Nephi um, probably comes from the Egyptian word nefer, which means good, fine, or goodly. It's possible that the word Nephi means good or fair, beautiful or fair. 
the idea that the word Nephite could mean good or fair ones adds insight into Mormon's last lament as he talks about the fair ones over and over and over. O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? This could be a play on the word Nephi or Nephites, which might have meant fair ones. That he's doing a lament to the fair ones. He continues, um, says, How is it that ye could have fallen? This might allude to a Hebrew word, uh, nafal, which means fallen ones. The Nephites, nephi, Egyptian word, compared to the Hebrew, nafal. O ye fair ones, how you have fallen. Maybe this is a play on words that Mormon is waxing poetic towards the end of his writings. That he laments that these Nephite fair ones have fallen so far. Verse number 20, he says, But behold, ye are gone, and my sorrows cannot bring your return. Finally, the final words from Mormon in this chapter. Oh, that ye had repented before this great destruction. There is his great lament. Please repent and come unto the Savior. I love that the final word of this chapter is mercy. That the Savior is constantly reaching out with mercy to anyone who will repent. We cannot say that we're too far gone. Mormon preached to these people as long as he possibly could. His overarching message was repent and come to the Savior. Even to a people who seemed lost. That the Savior was there with open arms to greet. Elder Neil A. Maxwell made this comment. He says, the prophet Mormon declared that Jesus waits with open arms to receive us, while the unrepentant and the unconsecrated will never know the ultimate joy described by Mormon, who knew whereof he spoke of being clasped in the arms of Jesus. This idea of the Savior with open arms continually waiting to embrace us. This is Mormon's concluding comments. Thank you for joining us. For more Come Follow Me teaching materials, visit cedarfort.com. Use code CFPODCAST to save 15% on your entire order. That's C as in cedar and F as in fort, podcast, for 15% off your entire order.